I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. On this episode of Newt's World, as I get older, I have to confess, I've become fascinated with the process of aging. What makes some people age quicker than others? How do we prolong our lives or encourage our bodies to age later? I am really pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Nir Barzilai. He is a professor in the Department of Medicine and the Department of Genetics at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He's also the director of the Institute for Aging Research in the Longevity Genes Project at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Dr. Barzilai and his team conducted genetic research on more than 500 healthy elderly people between the ages of 95 and 112 and on their children. He's also the author of the book, Age Later, Health Span, Lifespan, and the New Science on Longevity. Nir, welcome, and thank you for joining me again on Newt's World. Thank you, and thank you for your effort to have people understand that aging can be targeted and modulated, and we don't have to do what we've done so far in the last decades. Now, in fact, Joe DeSantis, who I work with on health issues, has pointed out, if you treated aging as a pattern the way you would treat, say, cardiology or you would treat cancer, in fact, you eliminate a lot of other diseases by the process of getting people to age later. Right, because the biology of aging is what drives diseases. So if we can intervene in the aging process, we'll prevent not one disease or two diseases, but several age-related diseases and conditions. Well, you know, you were last on in January 2020 before your book, Age Later, came out. And I'm fascinated to catch up with you because this is a very rapidly moving field. And I know you've learned a lot in the last three years. But before we talk about aging, can we talk briefly about your background? You were born in Israel. You served as a chief medic and physician in the Israel Defense Force. You graduated from the Ruth and Bruce Rappaport Faculty of Medicine at the Technion Israel Institute of Technology in Haifa. You completed your residence in internal medicine at Hadassah Medical Center in Jerusalem. 
mean, you've really had a remarkable career. Yes. And by the way, my early career, I was also in the war in Cambodia, you know, when North Vietnam conquered Cambodia. So I was in a third world giving first aid to young people (laughs) who escaped war. I went to South Africa during the apartheid. I was building a village in KwaZulu, a nutritional village. And it was about really saving young people when I eventually got to exactly the opposite scale and realizing that it's the old people that need help more than anyone. What is a nutritional village? Well, it's my own invention. I went as a last year medical student to do a rotation in epidemiology and I was going to South Africa and I looked for projects that I could do. And there's a church that said, we have money for a nutritional village in Kutu, KwaZulu. And I went there and I kind of invented what it is. And, and it was basically to take mothers and children who are in the hospital to a village that I've built basically with help to recover and teach them how to grow you know, vegetables, how to cook vegetables so it doesn't lose its nutritional value. And I kind of built it and created that, and it took off from there. It was very rewarding, although, you know, it's like all good intentions. The mothers were not really interested in growing vegetables and selling them, and they were not really interested in cooking the vegetables healthy, but at least it gave us time to get something done. Did you find when developing that village that you changed their health patterns? So I'll tell you a better story that demonstrates the challenge. In order to build this nutritional village, I had in the hospital a whole 50 people, young people who had tuberculosis but needed isolation to get treatment. And I came to that and I said, I'll pay you to build a village just outside the hospital. And I negotiated with them to realize they don't want money. They want me to bring beer, maize beer. And I said, no, I'm not going to bring maize beer. And they said, well, then we're not going to bring the village. And I stopped the negotiation. I said, they'll beg me. And they didn't. And eventually I said, I'll give you a truck. You'll buy your own beer. No, you are bringing the beer. And that's what I had to do. So there's a lot of compromise with the culture. That's wild. That's a great story. But now, you also did a fellowship at Yale on metabolism and at Cornell on endocrinology and molecular medicine. And yet, you end up now as a world leader on the issue of how we live longer and healthier. What drew you to looking at aging? Well, you know, my friends, when I was growing up, when they looked at their grandparents, they said, we don't know where they're coming from. You know, they never saw themselves being there. And that wasn't the case for me. I said, just a minute, what's happening here? And how can I stop it? When my grandfather, when he was 68, walked with me and told me what he did when he was young, and I was looking at this old man, obese, slow, I just couldn't believe it. It was always for me the biggest biology. I put you in the room, you don't know who has high cholesterol or hypertension or stuff, but you know who's old and who's young. It was clearly the main biology that we needed to solve. Well, I mean, if you think of it that way, and it's fascinating to me that the National Institutes of Health don't invest more in this, because if you solve the challenge of aging later, you eliminate all sorts of classes of disease that are a function of aging. 
So you probably get the largest single improvement in the cost of healthcare by helping people live dramatically longer in a healthy way. So, you know, the example that I spend a lot of my career on, not the only thing, but it's those centenarians, those hundred years old. In order to be in my study, and I have 750 centenarians, in order to be in my study, you have to live independently at age 95. And the thing that was most important for me is the question, okay, are they getting disease when all of us are getting disease, you know, between 60 and 80, and they just live longer with disease? I don't want that. Or is their health span and lifespan, does it go together? And the answer is that they're healthy 20, 30 years more than anyone else. So it's the health span and lifespan that goes together. At age 100, 30% of my centenarians don't have any disease and don't take any drug. And much more important, they have a contraction of morbidity. They're sick very little time at the end of their lives. In fact, the CDC have demonstrated since 1993 that the medical cost in the last two years of life of somebody who dies at 100 is third of those who die at 70. And we used to call it the longevity dividend until Andrew Scott, a professor of economy from London School of Economy, said, you're crazy. You're totally underestimating. What are we underestimating? He said, because it's not only that the people are not in the hospital. What are they doing? They are traveling. They are shopping. They are buying things for their grandkids. So the economy value of even stopping aging for two years is like $360 trillion. You know, it's like amazing economical value. Recently, I did a podcast with Henry Kissinger, who is now 99, just had a new book come out, which you and I were discussing, which is brilliant on leadership and on strategy and really a remarkable work. And he's working on his next book. So Henry doesn't fit any model of retirement I'm aware of. Absolutely true. Certainly, he's an example and very fitting of my 750 centenarians of somebody whose aging has been delayed. In some parts of the body, maybe more than others, but his book shows you that he has all the capacities to be a productive (laughs) member, have a great and interesting life. And this is what we're trying to determine. Look, maximal lifespan for humans, I'm telling you statistics now, is about 115 years. It's true that there are people who live over 120 years, maybe few but it's about 115 years. And look, in the United States, average lifespan has decreased. It's now 76. So we have 35, 40 years that we can use before even talking about something that might be relevant, and that is breaking this thing. But we have some things we can do right now in order to claim back some good, healthy life with good quality of life. Well, and I mean, to emphasize how radical this change is, up until relatively recent times, if you were in a hunting-gathering society, you often died in your 20s. Even with agriculture, you still often, I think by 1900, the average age was 46, partly affected by how many children die in childbirth and in the first five years. And with antibiotics and other things, we've rapidly eliminated early dying. But What that then did is it put us with a lot more people living a lot longer than historically we had. And and you raise a really interesting question, which I'd never thought about much, which is, as a matter of survival for the species, why would you build in 
a pattern of degenerating later in your life, why would you have some kind of system where it began to break down? I think you kind of answered that. And I think the time scale is important. Let's say there are 100,000 years of human evolution. We kind of argue about it, but 100,000 years. And it's only in the last 150 years that we clean the water, build the sewers and all that. So it's a very short time. And what happened in this short time, we got those diseases that we didn't have before when we died on average age of 20 and 30, right? Alzheimer, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancers, it's not what people were dying from. So we made a deal with the devil. You know, we got some very bad deal as we started crossing the age of 60. And what our profession, what geroscientists are saying, this doesn't have to happen. We understand enough in the biology to target it and extend our health span much more than we do now and prevent those diseases. When you look at the diseases that are the most expensive and that often are the most painful, whether it's cancer or diabetes or heart disease or Alzheimer's or what have you, it's conceivable, as I understand it, that if we focused on the process of aging, you eliminate whole classes of disease. And it actually has the largest single positive impact, both on quality of life, but also the cost of healthcare. No doubt. And you don't have to have a drug that's very powerful to get a huge impact on society. And I would actually say that some of the drugs that we can basically use just now should be used on the poor people, should be used on people who survive cancer and they're aging rapidly because we just gave them radiation and chemotherapy. People with HIV would have diseases 10 years earlier. Or by the way, if we want to go to Mars, then we have to solve aging because we'll never get there. So there's a lot of reason to start it. And I would say the poor people who at every city die 20 years before the rich are the one who can enjoy this intervention most. So in a sense, if you really had a substantial investment in understanding how you postpone aging, it would do more to help the poor than any other single group. Absolutely true. And yes, you know, when we talk about aging, we say you have to exercise, you have to diet, you have to sleep, you have to be in a good mood. And you know what? There are drugs that are very cheap and much cheaper than building gym and bringing fish and vegetables. And, you know, there's trade-offs, but there could be drugs that could really help the lifespan of poor people and they won't break the bank in any way. Are they over-the-counter? Well, no. The drugs that we can repurpose are drugs that are FDA-approved, but we check them on animal models in specific studies that are controlled studies to see which one of them increase health span and lifespan of animals. And there are about 12 such drugs. I picked one of them, and I'm leading this program that's called TAME, Taming Aging with Metformin. Metformin is a drug that is for diabetes. It's not over-the-counter. It's prescription although it's really an extract of the French lilac. It's kind of a nutraceutical. It was used 100 years ago to prevent flu or malaria or arthritis, but then it was showed in diabetes to lower their glucose, so it was kind of hijacked to diabetes. But it's what we call a gerotherapeutic. 
You give it to people, they die less, they have less heart disease, less diabetes, less cognitive decline. <laughs> so we are trying to show the FDA just what we talked about, that aging can be targeted. We are doing a control study, a clinical studies, placebo and the drug, to show that a variety of age-related disease, a cluster of them, can be prevented. And we believe that once the FDA understands that, there are 12 other drugs that can be repurposed and we can start making this progress. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., that's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. One of the ways you're getting at this is you study super agers, which I think is a fascinating concept. And candidly, I would love to be a super ager. So I hope 25 years from now, I could be one of your targets. But talk a little bit about this concept of super aging and what you're learning by studying it. So I'll give you a really good example. And I'll start with just making the point of why aging is important and why aging is what drives diseases. You can be born with a genetic change in your DNA that's called ApoE4. And a lot of people heard about ApoE4 because if you have ApoE4, you're likely to get Alzheimer when you're 70 and you'll be dead at when you're 80. And you have this ApoE4, you're born with it, but you're not born demented and you're not demented when you're one year or 10 year or 50 year. 
it takes aging to bring this out. I have centenarians who have ApoE4 and they're not demented. Okay, so they're both old and not demented. Why? Because they have genes that slows their aging so much that it's not going to catch up with them. And this is kind of the promise that we have. We have already two drugs that were developed by companies and had successful phase three trials. And we have many other drugs coming up the pipeline. There are $40 billion investment in longevity biotech technology with the promise that we can really make advance and target aging from different points of view in combination and be healthier for much longer. I think people would be surprised how many centenarians there are. What's the oldest age person you've studied? 112. 112 years old. She actually was a Stalin survivor. She was in Siberia for 60 years until she was released and went to the United States and had a whole other career. A lot of her centenarians, it's not that they had easy life. I'm always mentioning my uncle, who's 100 years old. He lives in Houston now. But he went to the Holocaust, and he said when he was 16, the Germans gave me the Grand Tour. I went through five concentration camps. They paid for everything, not enough food, but they paid for everything. So he's looking at it like that. He barely survived. He lost half of his weight. My grandfather sent him to medical school. He was in Prague, and he was an activist, anti-communist activist. So in 1967, the spring of Prague, he had to escape. So he's again escaping. He went to Vienna. He had to go out from Vienna. He went to Montreal. The separatists in Quebec blew the house next to him. He went to Houston. And now in Houston, he already built two houses after they were destroyed in hurricanes. So this guy is like, you can bring on whatever you want, but some of it is really the resilience of the people who have the biology of aging. And maybe actually this resilience is what brings them <laughs> to be. How old is he now? He's 100 years old. He just celebrated. Remarkable. And so part of this, you think, is that in fact, there are genetic patterns that we can begin to identify by studying the superagers, and that then leads us to a better understanding of how we want to encourage everybody and try to find a way to trigger those behaviors in our genetic system. I mean, is that a fair summary? It's a fair summary. People are hearing genetics. Okay, so you have a gene for centenarian. What does it mean for us? It means that we can develop drug. It doesn't mean that we need to do a genetic intervention. The gene tells us where is the place that we can design drug to. Okay, so don't be intimidated. If you have longevity gene, you don't need us. If you don't have, we can make it happen. Given everything people have said over the years about what you need to do, in your studies, nearly 50% of the centenarians are overweight or obese, nearly 50% smoke, and fewer than 50% do even moderate exercise. I mean, that sort of blows apart the whole last half century investment. Okay, it was totally misinterpreted. For those people, it didn't matter. Look, I had Helen Riker is a woman who died at 110. I met her when she was 100 years old and in a New York apartment, and she was smoking. And I said, Helen, nobody told you to stop smoking. And she said, all the four doctors that told me to stop smoking, they died. <laughs> they didn't need it because they had longevity genes. 
we don't have longevity genes, so we need to interact with the environment. So it just happened that the proof of concept on them has been not that they did anything with the environment, it's in spite of what they did wrong for the environment. It's like the example of this ApoE4 genotype, right? You have a very strong genotype. Everybody else gets Alzheimer and you don't get Alzheimer because something slows your aging or make you resilient to disease in a way that it doesn't matter anymore. Basically, you wrote that demographers estimate that for most people, genetics are responsible for about 20 to 25% of aging and the environment is responsible for the rest. But for centenarians, their genes are about 70 to 80% responsible for how they age and the environment counts only for about 20%. So in that sense, there are patterns you're beginning to identify where you could almost take like a genetic test at 12 and have a pretty good sense of, I can do what I want, or I better find some drugs which offset the fact that I don't have this genetic pattern. Well, I like to say what I told to Helen too, there is a benefit to exercise, diet, sleep, and having good mood in addition to everything that we might be doing in drugs. We believe it's synergistic. It adds up. When you're studying people between 100 and 112, what tends to be the average age of life that one of those superagers can expect to live to? If they're 100, their mortality is 30% a year. And it's actually an important question from us scientists, and that's why I'm very interested in the genetic discovery in centenarians, but in order to understand that, I'm studying their offspring, okay? Their offspring are in their 70s, and we're longitudinally looking at the offspring to see how their aging is really slowed from variety of tests that we can do and not just a cross-sectional one time with a centenarian. And to what degree are centenarians likely to pass that genetic structure on to their children and grandchildren? Well, so it's not one gene, it's composition of gene, but we basically say half. I'll give you an example. We take the children of centenarians and the people who they are married to, okay? So they are sharing the environment pretty much. In fact, we show that they're sharing the environment because we take questionnaires and we see what's their food and their exercise and their BMI and everything that's important. They're the same. And although they're the same, they have half of the heart disease. They have half of the cognitive decline and they have half of the mortality. So being a child of a centenarian is very high risk for you to basically live healthier for 10 years longer, pretty much. But you've also commented that you think we're at the early stages of potentially living to be substantially longer than 112. Explain why you think there's potentially another, say, 30 years or 35 years. I'll repeat what I said before. Our lifespan as a species is 115 years. So whatever we do to reach that might be very much different than what we need to do in order to pass that. And I would say one of the scenarios is the Peter Pan scenario. It's when you're 20, let's take your body and give you a treatment where we erase your aging and we'll repeat this treatment every few months or every year so that you won't actually get old, which 
probably is going to happen in 50 years. And even when you do it, it might make you live over 100 years. But in the meantime, we have another problem, and that's what I call the fountain of youth problem. How can we take an old person and make him young again? And this is a big challenge. But we know that we can take an old person and give them some treatments and make them healthier. They are not going to live longer, but they're going to live healthier. So those are all things that are in experiments, in animal models, some of that in humans. And so there's a lot that's happening now. In a sense, it goes back to a comment you made earlier that if you could have the perfect life, you would live up until when you didn't. But you would be healthy until that last weekend. Right. It's healthy, 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 and dead. 30% of my centenarians don't wake up in the morning. Okay, that's all. And they have interesting and full life. And when you're sick, you want to die when you're suffering. Okay, if you're healthy, if you do things, if you go to the theater, if you enjoy a movie, if you're a family, if you're friends, you don't want to die. That's right. You always figure later on. There was a famous philosopher of healthcare who was born in Scotland. He said when he grew up in Scotland, he assumed that life would be short and death would be brutal. And when he moved to Canada, he thought that life would be long and pleasant and death would be gradual and acceptable. And when he moved to Southern California, he realized there's no reason to give up life. There's a cultural pattern there. I have to read one thing you wrote, and I want you to comment on it because it's so fascinating. You write that Madame Calmet, who died at age 122, became a celebrity of sorts. She started a lot of interest in centenarian studies because she was known for being young well into her later years. Calmet was born in 1875 in Arles, France, and lived there for her entire life. Arla is known for inspiring Vincent van Gogh's paintings, and Calmet met van Gogh when she was 12. Her husband died in 1942 when she was 67, but that didn't slow her down. She continued to participate in all the activities she'd enjoyed with her husband for decades, including riding her bike around Arla until she was 100. She reportedly ate two pounds of chocolate every day and credited her olive oil-rich diet for her calm disposition and her long life. I mean, that is an amazing story. Right. And I'll tell you, you can eat chocolate and olive oil, and you're not going to be 122. So it's not all the faults of her diet. She definitely had longevity genes. I have to ask you, Iceland is a place I really like. I mean, it's a very unusual kind of place with the volcanoes and weather. People don't realize that Iceland's weather is about the same as New York City because of the Gulf Stream. But it's very isolated. And you make the assertion that Icelanders, there are a little fewer than a half million Icelanders, and they are descendants of five Viking men and four Irish women. Is that really true? Yes. And that's why they're all kind of between brothers and cousins, right? Second degree cousins. And that's why Iceland became the hub of genetic testing. Because if, you know, I'm in New York, if I would go to the streets of New York and take the genes of everybody, there would be so much noise. I wouldn't be able to figure out what's disease, what's longevity. But when you have a population like that, you find a lot of things. Another example are the Amish. Okay. They have 12 founders and the population that I'm doing, and this is the Ashkenazi Jews who also, because of a bad history, bottlenecks, our genome is much more homogeneous than other white population. And that's why I need 
between 20 and 50 times less people in order to discover pretty much the same genes. You say about 40% of today's Ashkenazi population came from just four founding mothers? Right. Where You know, we get our mitochondria, this organelle that is important for our energy. We get this genome only from our mothers. Okay, this is the mitochondria. The sperm doesn't bring the mitochondria. Only the egg has the mitochondria. And so when you look at the genetics of the Ashkenazi Jews, you find four mothers. It's almost biblical. And that's a good marker. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. I want to divide this into sort of three parts. Given everything you're learning, which is, I think, amazing and an enormous contribution to the future of the human race and our ability to break out of the current cost structure, and frankly, the whole current model of what we think of as aging and retiring, because that really came out of an industrial era model where people worked physically, whether it was plowing behind a mule or working in a steel plant, and may not have any relevance, may in fact be contraindicated for an age of knowledge and an age of people who have a totally different wear and tear on their bodies. I want to ask about three different things. One is, what should individual people learn? Second is, what should the medical and health professions learn? And third is, for public politicians who are worried about the cost of health care and worried about all these major diseases, what should they learn? I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but you're very smart. What was the first? As an individual, I'm listening to you and I want to know how do I live longer and better? What should I learn? So one thing is just get 
the right information because there's a huge revolution that's coming, okay? And you should be part of the revolution. But in the meantime, I mentioned it before, there's exercise. Exercise is good. It's number one. It's good at every age, every sex. It really changes the projection of disease, of cognitive decline. Number one, you should do it. I'm doing it an hour a day, no matter what. Second is nutrition. Nutrition is harder to give advice, but I'll tell you what I do. Because what I do is based on my research. In my research, starting 30 years ago, I had two groups of animals. Half of them ate whatever they want, and their brothers got 60% of that. So they were calorically restricted. And the calorically restricted animal lived 40% longer, but also much healthier. You know, like the centenarians, they lived, lived, and they died one day. And it was translated to mean you should have less for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But that's not what we've done. What we've done is we would come in the morning and give the animals their food for the day. And they were hungry, so they would eat this food in 20 minutes, and then they would be fasting for 23 more hours. So it's not only the caloric restriction, it's the fasting. And when we gave the food to the animals during the day, they were still thinner, but they didn't live long. So fasting is very important for longevity. So me and my friend, what we do, almost all of us, is we fast for 16 hours a day. You know, usually you eat something 16 hours and then you sleep. We're doing the opposite. We skip breakfast pretty much. For example, I finished food last night at 8 and I'm not going to eat before 12. Usually I go to 17 hours. It's not hard anymore. So fasting is one of the important things. And when people start doing that, and lots of people, it's easy for them to do. Some people, they cannot do it. But those people who do that see the benefit immediately. I lost a lot of weight. I lost this hunger that I had during the day. My concentration is better. My energy and exercise capacity have increased. People are doing fasting in different ways. They do a fast 24 hours once a week. There are people who are fasting for five days, three times a year. There's a lot of how people do that. We've been focusing on what's healthy, but I think much more important for aging is to include fasting in what you're doing. And I'll tell you, I never did a three months diet. I think I would break if I had three months, but I never break if I had one hour more to go and then I can eat whatever I do. Sleep is also something that's hard to tell you sleep. But one thing is, if you can go to a dark room for eight hours, close all your machines and beeps and stuff, and sleep six and a half hours of that, it's going to make a major impact. So sleep is really important because if you don't sleep, it drags everything away. You cannot exercise, your diet is ruined. And good mood is also something, it's just you have to find a purpose in life or not be lonely. And so those are things that if you prprioritize, they get you over the age of 80. Metformin seems to be a very promising breakthrough, but could you explain that for lay people? Yes. So metformin is a drug, kind of a nutraceutical drug, but it's modulated. And so it needs a prescription that has been used for 100 years, a lot of it in diabetic patients. And what we've learned using that in different studies it prevents heart disease, it prevents diabetes, it prevents cancer, 
It prevents Alzheimer's and cognitive decline and prevents mortality in different studies. And the reason it does it, because it's what we call a gerotherapeutic. It actually targets all the hallmarks of aging. So it takes an old cell or an old organ or an old body and makes it young again. And this is the drug that we're using to show the FDA that aging can be targeted. This is the flagship of the drug that proves our concept. If you ask diabetologists, they say, no, 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 it's for diabetes, but they are wrong. It was always a drug that was really targeting the biology of aging. That's wild. So second, what should the medical profession and the health systems be learning from what you're doing with superagers? Yeah. So you mentioned the National Institutes of Health. When I hear it, I laugh. There's no National Institutes of Health. They're institutes of disease. They're the National Cancer Institute. Okay. They're diseases. The only institute that is really interested in health is the Aging Institute. They're trying to see how we can stop aging. And I think this is more of political because you can understand that those institutes wants to stop or treat their diseases but they're not ready to give in <laughs> for some other ideas. In fact, we've been trying to go to these institutes and we made several strides to tell them, for example, most of the studies to study cardiovascular disease are on animals that are two months old. It's not on the same platform at all. It's a totally different biology. And then they wonder that what they discover is not relevant for treatment. By the way, if you were mice, you'd be okay. We know what to do with you. But, you know, we cure mice and we don't cure human, of course, because you're not using the right model. There's a biology that's similar in all animals and humans, and that's the biology you have to consider. So I think the internal politics of our health is very resistant to change. And although we advance so much, we get the best papers in nature and science, and we have proof of concepts of drugs and everything, the medical community doesn't rally that fast. It's very frustrating, but it takes decades sometimes to say, hey, <laughs> we can do better. One of the things we're doing at Gingrich 360 is we work with the Alliance for Longevity Initiatives, which is run by Dylan Livingston, which, frankly, we're trying to educate lawmakers about the importance of aging research and to develop special pathways for healthy aging medicines at the FDA. And as you know, it's not the way either the FDA or NIH is currently set up. But one of the things we're going to do is take this podcast and get it out as widely as possible to decision makers and implementers and people to get them to understand that there's an enormous opportunity here. And if we follow the right research 20 or 30 years from now, we're going to be in a totally different environment in terms of length of life, quality of life, cost of health care, and frequency of disease. Absolutely. I totally agree. The third point is, you know, and okay, now I'm outside of my profession, but I'm in all those panels. I was just in the Milken Institute, all those panels that are saying, Okay, but, you know, if people are going to live longer and healthier, what do we do? What do we do with them? What do we do with the social services? What do we do with retirement age? And I totally agree. This has to move somewhat in parallel. Look, the sad news for me, we're not going to live from 76 to 86 overnight, okay? It will be a process. And I think this process will make people realize that they have to do other planning. But I want to give you... Two examples for the listeners who would kind of understand 
how things can change. One is an effort in the United States to take retired people and assign them individual keys. I wouldn't say tutor, but kind of mentor. So you have a kid and you have an, an older person that has time and he helps you with your homework, but he also tells you his stories and his lessons of life. And those studies, those efforts have been translated. There's outcomes. And you can see that those kids have been doing really well. In other words, there's a way to make life interesting for a retired person and also influence the young society. That's one. The second is a wonderful effort called 80 on 4. When you take four-year-old kids to old age home and you take 80-year-old people and you let them interact and two things happen. On one hand, the elderly people are getting better in everything because they have to start running after the kids and they do games together, but they start improving both physically and mentally, and their moods are becoming better. But even more important, the parents of the four-year-old saying, you know, our kids developed something that they didn't have before, empathy. You know, they love those people. They understand that they cannot run without actually holding their hands. And they develop all this relationship that is good for the elderly and good for the kids. So it's private examples, but I'm saying there are lots of good people out there. There's lots of people who are thinking about it and implementing. And so this is for the elderly, but social services have to change and adapt accordingly too. Look, a lot of people who are listening to this are going to be fascinated. And if they wanted to sign up for your longevity study, is there a website? What can they do to come and interact with you and learn about this? Yes, thank you. We have a registry at the page of the American Federation for Aging Research, AFAR. It's called the Super Ager Initiative, where we're getting 10,000 centenarians and their families across the United States. So if you know a centenarian, go to American Federation of Aging Research and register, and we'll learn a lot, and it's for your health. It's amazing. I want to thank you for joining me. We're going to have a link to your website so people can learn more about your Longevity Genes Project at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. We're also going to have a link so they can buy your book, Age Later, Healthspan, Lifespan, and the New Science of Longevity on our show page at newtsworld.com. And I want to thank you for coming back once again. Thank you. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Nir Barzilai. You can get a link to buy his book, Age Later, Healthspan, Lifespan, and the new science of longevity on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts, and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville. Talladega, the Chicago street course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.